Welcome back to the Pause It For Me podcast. I'm here with Hannah. Hey. And we're very excited to be bringing you a different kind of episode today. We're not going to be looking at a film specifically. We're going to be looking at a director. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome local Ottawa filmmaker Scott Blurton. Uh, thank you very much for having me on your show. Absolutely. We're really excited to chat with you about filmmaking. Yeah. This is awesome because I met Scott um, after he did a panel at Ottawa Comic Con doing a whole uh, low-budget filmmaking 101 talk. And I was like, this guy certainly has some wisdom to share. And I thought it would be really interesting for our audience members here um, to learn some stuff. And so, Scott, why don't you give us a little background about you as a filmmaker and sort of how you got into filmmaking? Uh, yeah, it was um, it really kind of came out of nowhere. I think it was like one of those things where we grew up in a small town, so it wasn't really a lot to do. But we had probably one of the greatest video stores that the earth has ever seen. It was called George Street Video, and they had probably 10,000 VHS tapes that mm. you could just rent for like four or five bucks. So it was amazing in the sense where looking, comparing to it now, I had so much more of a film education than anybody can get access to now because now they, you know, after a certain number of years, they just pull it off the service because they don't want to pay the actors, producers, all that stuff. But yeah. right. there, it was there for 20, 30, 40 years. So mm -hmm. you would get this old stuff. You would get, like, I like the joke that I got to see Lawrence of Arabia as God intended on VHS <laughs> tapes. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, and then when we came here, I came here a while back and then I, I think I was trying to find purpose in my life because I think we all get so focused on just trying to survive. And I went through some tough times and then I managed to get with the federal government and that kind of took care of like I was able to enter the middle class. And then you have your pension, you have all that stuff. And when you get sustenance, uh, I guess sustenance, like subsistence, mm -hmm. you start thinking about bigger questions like, okay, what do you want to do with your life now? Now what? And so mm -hmm. I ran for city council because I'd always been interested politically. I didn't do very well. I, I think I did finish second, but it was a very distant second. <laughs> and I was I didn't enjoy it as much as I was expecting it. And then little things kept coming up during the process, which I thought, well, this is pretty funny. This would be a pretty good comedy to talk. And no one's made a film about that, about municipal politics. Mm -hmm. So that was in 2014. And in 2015, I wrote the script. Um, and then we did some test shots and then we started on 2016 and we filmed until 2018. And then I did post-production. Well, partly while we were filming it, cause you have downtime, of course, mm -hmm. uh, the, the rough cut I was mostly doing. And then most of the production took around 2018 to 2021 and it kept getting pushed further and further back because the technology shifted so quickly that there was more you could do. Mm -hmm, and it kind of sure. made things difficult because I didn't really use a very good camera so color grading for a, can, a yeah. 10, 12 Camera year old. Camera matching. Yeah, yeah it was, mm -hmm. it's not meant for that. So I had to spend a lot of time like doing all these little details. But the flip side is it gave me a full appreciation for what the film process is. So when you guys talk about your film, it's like, oh, yeah, we just got it done and it took a, a few months. I'm like, I, how did you do that? <laughs> well, they always say like an overnight success takes yeah. like 20 years. Like we went to film school. Oh, We've yeah. been, we're the type of kids that would shoot little home movies and stuff like that. So it's we had a background and, you know, Andrew had gear. And so it was a little bit easier for us to jump in, you know. 
to the process. Um, were you the type of kid to only watch movies or did you make any home movies yourself? Um, the, we didn't really have access to too much. We had a camcorder and we didn't have the ability to edit. So we had to film everything in sequence. The only thing I can think we did is that we used white blankets and I think Star Wars toys. And we kind <laughs> Love of... Love that. And dental That's floss. classic, yeah. Dental floss. And we had the snow speeders actually fly and we did a little scene of them taking on AT-ATs, which was the only thing we really did. I just never conceived it as something that I could do from a, mm -hmm. a small town like that. And the to now the technology is <laughs> almost anybody can make a film. You could make it with your phone now. It's just it's just ridiculous. Like even during the canvasser, the just the software technology moves so quickly, it dramatically changed the quality of the film. Because mm -hmm. originally, I assumed that color grading software was 10 grand at that time. Wow. Yeah. So what I tried to do is I set the color profile to get what I wanted because I figured I had to capture it in camera or else that's it. That's fair, yeah. But that's they gave it. They gave a color grading suite on Final Cut Pro to us for free. Right. Which yeah. was like crazy. I'm like, what? This is free <laughs> now? So now, of course, I have to do color grading. And then you go through and you find... Oh, I did not do this right at all. <laughs> Why do my eyes have purple in them? What is going on? Mm -hmm. So many lessons learned on the first yeah, film. Yeah, I did Absolutely. everything sure. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of it is like, you know, my day job is a photographer and, you know, looking back at old photos and stuff, it's like, why did I do this? But like, <laughs> as you do it more and more, you're like, oh, okay, I learned from this mistake and you move forward and it's the same with filmmaking. So I think one of the things that doesn't get covered is workflow, how to do a proper workflow. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I didn't even find even now was how do you store the data? How do you organize the data? Yeah. Because I, I'm pretty sure the way I did it is wrong, but it's the only way I could do that made sense to me and okay. I kept track of things. The other thing I found was just the workflow at the camera, understanding why everything fits together, like the slate with the colors. I didn't really understand what that was for. Right. It's like, well, we could just snap our fingers and we can get audio synchronization. And I think it's a lot of it has to do with that slate. It has to do with color grading. For us, it was actually just organization of files. Oh. So like writing the scene in the take and, you know, with continuity or something, we'd write, oh, in this take, this person messed up. And then for the editor, you can go to the top of the slate and be like, oh, it's this scene. Well, it's also some slates have the color bars on them. And That's that true, helps yeah. you be able to match uh, camera shots. Like if you shot on two different days, but they're supposed to be cameras, even, the, but yeah. they're supposed to be in the same location, yeah. you can look at those colors and be like, OK, the white balance was clearly wrong this day. I know what this color is supposed to look like. Like I know what the color value is supposed to be. I can use that knowledge to effectively color match the footage. Well, right. that saves so much time because I remember when I was mm -hmm. doing it, you spent all this time trying to correct and get two shots to look like they're in the same space, even if they're not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's definitely an overlooked aspect, uh, especially at an indie level. I think a lot of people can use their phone and create like interesting storytelling, but I think sound and color grading are two lacking qualities uh, at a lower level just because it's it's not as easy to just pick up and play right away there's a little more to it so yeah we were very lucky we had charles frost come on board um he just took care of all the audio recording mm -hmm. and he knew exactly what needed to be done and so the only thing i had to do is i had to sometimes just clean up background audio using arc 7 advanced which mm -hmm. is that's crazy that that's what that software can do 
and then I was pretty lucky in the photography. Uh, Yuan Fang um, took over that and just did most of the shots. I still had to do some shots, but she had a much better eye than I did. So I was very fortunate on that. Right. Now, how big was your crew on like a typical shooting day? Did it vary from day to day or did you have a pretty consistent team? It was pretty consistent of just the three of us, uh, Yuan, myself and Charles. Mm -hmm. uh, we did have circumstances where Yuan or, or uh, Charles couldn't make it. So we had people that would step in. I think uh, ZZ Wang came in. I think James, I can't remember his last name. Uh, he's, he makes, he's another director in the area who makes a lot of films. He loves the Sony um he came in but for the most part it was the three of us and so we were a very light crew which was nice because it made it easier to get approvals because you have almost no yeah. impact on the community when you're shooting outside right now with, su true. with such a small crew you must have stepped out of that director comfort zone and done a lot of uh, or a fair bit of other roles on set would you say oh yeah it's it was it's tricky where I, I kind of cast myself as the lead actor, not because I thought I was any good, because I knew I was cheap and I knew I'd show up. Yeah. Consistency. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and sure. when you're working on a, a micro budget, that's such a big deal is people who show up and who really want to do it and who care. And mm -hmm. um, that makes such a huge difference because when someone doesn't show up, that's just a gut punch. Um, that you just have to try and figure out your way through. Um, but it's also kind of like interesting in that sense where when I was working for a political campaign, it was very difficult to get volunteers. When you're working on a movie, it's very easy to get volunteers because movies are kind of magical. We've all It's something we've all kind of wanted to do. Like I had mm -hmm. one actress and I asked her, oh, it's interesting. You're interested in doing what, what made you want to do that? It's like, it's on my bucket list. I wanted to do a movie. Like she's <laughs> That's a very interesting. quiet yeah. and shy person. And she was great in the scene. Like mm -hmm. she actually did a really great job. Mm -hmm. Some people are just naturals. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, when it comes to those uh, on set roles, what kind of things other than directing did you gravitate to filling in on set versus what set roles were you like, I don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole? On set, um, I think what I had to tend to do, and I think this is one of the things that people mentioned afterwards that we were pretty strong on as far as production is is organization uh, on the production side. We would have, I would have it so that we could get the crew set up in about an hour and start shooting. And the cast always really appreciate that because they want, they don't want to be sitting around waiting and talking about it. Mm -hmm. And when, so yeah. when you hear in Hollywood instances where they don't shoot for a while while they're trying to figure out what they're doing, it just seems mind boggling to me. It's like, yeah, how can you just, you have to have that planned out. Like, like and, and that kind of was the thing I, I thought I was really nice about. It's the puzzle solving element of how do we get this shot? How For do sure. we make this work? Was was really enjoyable. Mm -hmm. As far as not enjoyable, uh, <laughs> I would have to say audio editing, a sound sound effects editing was yeah. really a grind, mm -hmm. and it just made me appreciate people who do that professionally because it's sure. so labor intensive. Agreed. I'm just working through that right now. Sound is the last thing that I'm putting the finishing touch on in my movie. And it's the thing that has made me bang my head against the wall the most. Yeah. Especially like listening to something through headphones and being like, okay, it sounds it sounds okay. And then listening to it through speakers and being like, it's totally off. Yeah. It's like mm -hmm. we got, um, I picked up some, I was doing it mostly with my headphones. Like actually these ones right here that I brought. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not a good way to do it. I ended up getting some stereo, uh, sorry, monitors they call them. Yeah. And that made a big difference. But even then, hmm. we did a stereo yeah. mix. But when hearing it in, say, the Mayfair, it doesn't quite sound right, the levels. So I think um, the challenge I was doing is I kind of mixed it for a home center, like two speakers right. side by side. Right. But for 
and I think I, I mixed it to the standards, the Netflix standards, the LUFs. But mm-hmm. I think for a theater, I think that requires a different standard. And I don't think right. I did that. And I, you could kind of hear the Mayfair. And I think next time what I'll have to do is I'll have to do one for theaters, stereo, mm-hmm. and then another one for home, for right. streaming type of thing, and then make do two of them. My lead actresses in LA, we're going to go down in March during spring break, and we're going to rent a theater for her, so watch it with whoever she wants to invite. Mm-hmm. And so the theaters that are available and their costs are actually pretty affordable. I'm kind of shocked. Wow. So okay. it would be really interesting to see how it sounds as it is mm-hmm. currently done. Um, the other the process that was really tricky was the, creating the digital cinema package was really hard. But it was good because it will only work if the video like that goes into it is good. If there's any type of glitches in the video, it will reject it. So that's kind of nice where it was really frustrating to get through that process. But it kind of showed, oh, you need to re-export this or re-render this. Absolutely. Well, you, I remember you talking about this quite a bit during your talk at Ottawa Comic Con. And this all this information was part of why I really wanted to have you on the podcast. And you saw, like, as soon as you finished your talk, I bolted right up to you. And I was like, hey, can we chat? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, like, was kind of neat. a similar process, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just impressed with the fact you guys were able to put it together so quickly. And when I saw the, tra- the trailer, it looked really good. Like, oh, oh, I really, really appreciate that. Yeah. I think part of it is, is Andrew has now done five years of corporate video, which is very in and out. You have to shoot really quickly with subjects that maybe are not familiar with being in front of the camera. So that's definitely made it a bit easier for us. And as a photographer, especially for weddings, you have to shoot in and out like super quick and like makeup time and stuff. So I think that lends to us being able to get stuff done quickly. Not only on the filming front, but on the turnaround, on the edit, like you'll film something and then the company will be like, like you just finished and you're like, they're like, okay, when can I have it? It's like, okay, we need to offload the footage. We got to, we got to rough cut all this. Yeah. You know, it's going to be a bit, but we try to be as quick as possible. Now you talked about uh, growing up and having this um, this education of films through VHS tapes. Can you name me three films that describe your taste in movies, either the movies that you like to watch or maybe the movies that you want to make? This is a question that I love asking people who come mm-hmm. on the podcast. Okay, yeah, no problem. I, I think the first one, it's actually it was interesting you asked me this question like as a, a pre-question to think about it. Mm-hmm. The first one I, I went to was an Australian film called Muriel's Wedding. Oh, I love that movie. We know Muriel's Wedding. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, I think I saw that in high school and like, yeah, you know, everyone goes through struggles in high school and like, mm-hmm. yeah, but it really mm-hmm. spoke to me on an emotional level. And it just, I think it is like the sense that you're always looking back to um, a past that wasn't that great. And that you kind of have to let God go into right. the future. I just think it's a really amazing movie. I don't even know mm-hmm. who the director of that was, but I do remember yeah. Tony Collette's oh, in it. Oh, she's awesome. Rachel yeah. Griffiths. Um, and just like the characters and how she grows as a person. It's just like, it's such a, I got to watch it again. Oh, it's like yeah, such it's an underrated. emotional movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very unique. I love that they use Dancing Queen, which is such amazing. like a happy song. They use that at all the lowest moments in the movie when Muriel's just like in tears, just like moping about, they use such a happy song to punctuate that moment. I find it really interesting. <laughs> you can hear the emergency vehicles. They're right? coming for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your that's your first and what's your second? Uh, I guess the second one, I had the whole list now, I'm starting to forget it. Oh yeah, you really can hear that. It's yeah. some nice uh, audio texture. It really picks it up, yeah. <laughs> I, I'd say the second one would probably be Inception because mm. I think Inception and no one in particular does something where I think movies really have to go and Mm. that's really trying to do big ideas with big scope 
And right. I think that's kind of the challenge. Like, I, I think that's what I want to try and do is just trying to find a way to do it in more affordable ways. Because I, I think that's the challenge we're facing with movies is that we're all kind of making the same movie over and over again and audiences are getting bored. And it seems so strange that the movies themselves are getting more and more expensive, but they feel smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A24 is kind of like that. Yeah. yeah, It's just, I mean, there's reasons for it. I think James Cameron said once, um, the more outlandish you make the premise, the more grounded you have to bring it to something that people will understand, usually a family or Mm. relationship. And I think the challenge is every Hollywood movie does that. So audiences are starting to tune it out like it's, it's just right noise um and so i think that's what i'm trying to do with the next one because but the challenge is again trying to do a it in a way that is cheap like yeah probably primer is probably the best example of that where they took a really big idea mm-hmm. and um made it really really cheap and you didn't have to have a lot of money for it because it's the idea was big enough but uh it's a, been a real struggle trying to figure out how to do the next film and then i think the third one is up because that mm-hmm. first 10 minutes oh, is so, so heartbreaking. Mo- it's just, it's it's filmmaking at its best. It's so emotionally compelling. And they don't say a thing. Mm-hmm. And you get everything you need to know. And it sets up the movie, the rest of the movie, in a really, in a really amazing way. And I, I think I always think back to that where we I try and think of like, how can I, like the screenplay I wrote that's now on Blacklist, I think we tried to do something, I tried to do something similar where, you don't say a word. You have a single shot that kind of tells you everything. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it worked. The reviewer got back and says, yeah, that really worked well. I'm like, okay, it's yeah. just the rest of the movie you need to work on. I'm like, okay. Right. I, I think that's a good principle to have, even if it's like innately. In film school, they really drive that in is show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. So just being able to convey an idea. I mean, that's part of the appeal of filmmaking is being able to just show an idea instead of doing an exposition dump and being like, and then his wife died. It's like, well, that's not interesting. So, yeah. Or that is kind of the, the, the flip side of Christopher Nolan is he tends to over-explain things. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, this in, this thing that you already know, we're going to talk about it and make sure that you fully understand it. Like, okay, you didn't need that scene. You could cut that scene. I think because some of his premises are hard to buy into, mm-hmm. which is why maybe they feel like they have to over-explain it. So. Right. Well, one of the things that I loved hearing you talk about was – the environment that you create on set and your attitude towards the people who are helping out and volunteering on your set. So do you have like a motto or a mantra or a philosophy when it comes to directing a set full of actors and crew members? I would say you have to focus on getting what you need, not what you want. I I think one of the things I struggled with is you kind of have this idea of what a director is and you think, Mm -hmm. okay, this person's got this idea and he's got to get that idea in his head on the screen. And when you go through and you get experience with it, you realize you can't do that because that you're not going to get what's in your head mm-hmm. on screen. Mm-hmm. It's like you kind of have to give what the actors give you and work with them on it. And you're going to create something that you don't quite expect. Like mm-hmm. I remember one time I was working with Vilma and who was the lead actress? Vilma uh, Pasazak. And I made her do 20 takes of something. <laughs> And I, until I got what I was thought I was looking for. And when I went and every time you could tell, like every time I'd go back to her, she was getting a little bit more worried and more like unrelaxed and a little bit more distressed because mm-hmm. it's like, OK, this isn't going well. I'm not getting him all he needs. And then when I got into the editing suite, guess which one I took? 
Like the first take. The first yeah, take. Yeah, yeah. Because it was <laughs> natural. Yeah. It was like, it was her being the more real and less regimented mm-hmm. and stilted, trying to fit what somebody else thinks her their performance would be. And so I think that's the best attitude you have to have. The second one, I guess, would be like, everything's going to go wrong. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You kind of have to accept that. And you got to make sure, especially if you're dealing with a volunteer crew, you can't yell at them. You can't. You got to treat them right because Mm -hmm. they don't have to be there. They could do anything they else want with their lives. It's like you need them more than they need you. So I think that was a good learning experience on set. Mm -hmm. Sure. I'd love to expand on that even more. What were some of the some of the biggest learning experiences that you had over your multi-year journey of creating this feature film? Um, I think trying to spend more time at the pre-production level on the script uh, is really smart because I think we did with the canvasser, it could have used one more rewrite. Mm-hmm. And I think that's tough for people to go through unless they've gone through the filming experience. They don't realize certain things like montages are not a good idea. It's just really, and you don't know why you don't know why when you do it, you don't realize that, okay, yet two second shot in this new location, you got to drive there. You got to get out, you got to load, you got to put everything together. Right. You got to get the shot. You have to get a permit for the shot. And you're doing an hour to two hours of work just to get two seconds. Yeah, that's definitely a challenge of working in multiple, multiple locations in the film, which is why with Coffee to Cocktails, we definitely scaled it back a lot, which made production shooting a lot easier than having to secure different locations. I think there is a way to do a montage that's just one location and make it like actually even quick. But if you are shooting at like 40 different locations, of course, that's going to take forever. So. We had 70 locations yeah, in that's, the cancer, which was yeah. basically the wrong thing. That's not what you should do. We did get smarter. I think I had one montage, which there's no way I would have been able to do it. And so I just made a, a radio broadcast. They talked about the candidate doing stupid things on a morning talk show and it's like that just kind of solved the problem right there it's like mm-hmm. okay i don't have to film all this stuff but that wasn't in the original script we had to i had to rewrite it in order to get that in mm-hmm. but now going forward it's like yeah those are the things i'm trying to avoid trying to be smarter so i can make a film in like four years instead of like six mm-hmm. i think that was the thing when you were writing your film is you purposely wrote it in such a way that you knew you could film it easily which is like instead of just coming up with the premise and then hoping, it, you know, it was just like it was already part of your pre-production process was being like, how am I going to write this to be doable? This yeah. is an audio only podcast. So I have to inform the audience that you are, in fact, referring to me and not Scott. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm just looking right at you. So I forget to address. Yes, I'm talking about Andrew in this instance. So, yeah, I'd love for you to tell me about a specific instance or maybe a string of instances over the course of the project where maybe it felt like everything was going wrong at once. I think like, especially when you get started, it feels so overwhelming. And then it's like, it's going to be tricky. It's like, how on earth are we going to do this? How are we going to get through this? And then you just keep going through and just keep putting one foot in the front of the other. And you start to build confidence in what you're doing. Um, I think the structure of how we did it also helped in the sense where we didn't try and cram it into 10 days. Um, we knew this was going to take a year or two, and we just did one section at a time. Mm-hmm. And it was good because then I could take that stuff and then go and edit with it. And that would inform me a lot of what I liked and what I didn't like. Like, for example, right. I thought we would do a lot of medium shots. We just mostly did medium shots. And then I would always just throw the two shot in there just so we had coverage. I wasn't expecting to use it. 
But what was strange mm-hmm. going through it is how much I realized I loved the Y2 shot because you saw the two actors interact with one another. Right. Whereas a medium shot, especially if it's isolated where it's not over the shoulder, mm-hmm. you don't see that. You don't get that. Mm-hmm. And that shocked me that I actually liked that aspect of it. And so what I thought was going to be my style definitely changed over the film. And looking for future films, it's like we're going to try and do more of that. Um there was times I think where I think emotionally it was just the stress would get to you. And I think I'd have to go. I think there was one point where I realized we were filming the, the camera was on the wrong side of the people because you know the 180 rule, yes. right? Yeah. So we filmed it wrong. We, we filmed one person on one side and then the camera we moved to the other side. So the 180 rule was violated. And I had to go sit down because I was just kind of like having a <laughs> mental breakdown. And then I, we came back and we got the shots and we did everything we needed to do. Um, there was definitely times, but it got easier as time went on because I think I was putting less and less pressure on myself. Um, and it's tough though, because it's hard for cast and crew to see what you're doing there. And it doesn't look very impressive. And then I think one person actually said, I don't think this is going to be a very good movie. Oh no. <laughs> it's like, that's oh. not the attitude you want everyone no. to have. Well, it's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta step up. And, uh, but it's in the post-production where I think it really all came together and mm-hmm. it is kind of amazing what you can do in post-production. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the advice I would give to filmmakers, if even it's not going well on set and you're not sure what you're getting, just make sure they get a lot of it because you would be so shocked at what you can do in post-production. We would have someone do a line and we would cut away from them and then cut back and it'd be two or three different readings. We would be inserting words from different shots into different shots in order to make the, the dialogue right. work. We had shots where we sped up the dialogue because it was taking too long. Mm-hmm. And I can hear it, but I think most people just accept that as is. Totally. Uh, we yeah. had shots where I spent a year on, on the visual effects because I didn't know what I was doing. And it's just like, it was just, oh man, this is never going to look right. And I kind of kind of got it where you don't notice it um so it's just you just have to have patience and you just have to try and just take one step at a time and it's so weird because at some point you're it's almost like you're working to some point over the horizon Mm -hmm. and you can't see it and you're just grinding away at it right then all of a sudden you see the end and you're like whoa there it is. Yeah, it's that moment where your pile of puzzle pieces starts to look like a picture. For sure. And you end yeah. up working twice as fast because you can see the end. You're not mm-hmm. getting depressed and like, I got to take a break for a couple of weeks, a mental health break. You're like, yeah. I can see the end. Let's go. And it really kind of is the fun part of it. Yeah, Absolutely. it's definitely really exciting to seeing all the pieces come together. Something that was just like words on a page and you're like, oh, someone's saying it. I just thought of this in my head and now it's here, you know, so exactly. it's pretty cool. And you know, that 180 thing, the 180 line rule, that happens, especially when you think you're yeah. like, oh, we got this, like, I don't have to worry about it. It's a simple rule. I'm not going to break it. And then like me and Hannah were filming a little skit in our apartment a couple of days ago and I filmed Hannah's uh, close up and then I went to do the reverse shot and I realized I was leaning against a wall in in my shot and there's no room for the camera to be where it needs to be in order to be on the correct side of the line. So we were kind of like, oh, crap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just had to cheat it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That happens. Sometimes with filmmaking, camera work is you need to know the rules and when you can break them. Yeah. So. And blocking is important. Yes. Blocking important. in advance. Yeah. So the inverse of the everything going wrong question, what's the most fun that you ever had on set during this project or any other project? 
Um, ooh, that's a good point. I'm trying to think of a particular shot where we had a lot of fun. Um, because it's been so long ago, I started to repress it. Uh, <laughs> I I think we I think we had we did city council. We actually shot in the chambers, and then we did a photo shoot after not a photo shoot, but people took pictures on the chairs and stuff like that, and they kind of had a good experience with it. It was kind of a nice get together moment and just kind of enjoy it rather than just rushing through and get work. And I I think that was something where. I think when we do the next one, I might have to be very cognizant of is making sure you give people the time to just kind of have fun mm-hmm. and like enjoy the experience yeah. and not just get on the work. Like it was useful. I think how organized we were was very important that you get there, you get shots because you build a sense of momentum and mm-hmm. then people can see, oh my gosh, we have 30 shots to do and we're on number 20 right now. And it's only been an hour. Yeah. And then by getting ahead of schedule, then you can give people more of a chance to relax, which mm-hmm. I think and have some fun and enjoy the experience because- it is one of those things where, you know, the movie, very few people are going to go see it. And it will, of course, be erased by time. But the experiences that people have making it are really kind of like the the major end product, like the memories that are created. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good attitude to have on a first film. And that's kind of what I went into my project thinking is like I was researching different directors and researching what their first film was. And I found that nine times out of ten, it either sucked and people hated it or it was completely lost to time or both or just kind of mediocre yeah you know and like especially directors that like you think you know what their first movie is like you think like oh james cameron what's his first movie uh it's got to be terminator right nope it's piranha 3d you know quentin tarantino easy one reservoir dogs right nope his first film was a film called my best friend's birthday that he spent three years on and then didn't finish it's like it got lost to time and I, I actually i did see that oh really yeah there is a youtube videos of it up there and Ooh. uh it is terrible <laughs> yeah. it is really terrible. It's a lear- yeah it's a learning experience so you just kind of wanted to get the first one out of the way <laughs> yeah. learn from it and then hope to make something better in the future yeah well yeah. and i think the right mindset is you have to like they, they give you encouragement on i think when james cameron's such an interesting one where he had to fight his way to be a director Mm-hmm. where Piranha, he kind of got through into that because they were they fired the director and they didn't have anyone else, so he stepped up. But in Terminator, he had this killer script. He knew he had this killer script, and he basically forced them to make him the director, and he did it for so cheaply that, that, that in order to do that. And even when he did Aliens, which is amazing, like the crew was going to quit on him because yeah. he wasn't. Yeah, they hated him. They hated him. <laughs> and so who's this Canadian coming in telling us what we do? We work for Ridley Scott. Who do you think you are? And it's like, I'm James Cameron. I'm the greatest director ever. <laughs> and it's like, now we know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we didn't, but people didn't know back then what he had the impact where he's basically the only person other than Marvel that can open a blockbuster movie and make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Now, speaking of now we know. What's something that you really wish you had known at the beginning of this filmmaking journey of yours that if you could give advice to your past self that you would give? I think it would have been nice to start earlier. I think it would seem like such a monumental process. Uh, And it actually was. I I think I joked during the conference that if I knew how much work it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have done it. (laughs) But it's, it's just amazing how in this time, Everything's approachable and there's like a logic and a coherence to everything that you can get on YouTube. Like YouTube is such an amazing resource for teaching you about filmmaking and the process to mm-hmm. make it. There's some gaps like workflow, file management that, you know, it would be good to have some YouTube videos on that. But it was just there was so much information there and advice that made things so much easier that 
you know, it would have been impossible because you wouldn't have known what you're doing. And like those directors back in the day, they didn't really, they had other movies to use as resources. They didn't really have instruction other than they got like from courses or classes. And a lot of mm-hmm. them didn't go to him. Like Spielberg didn't go to USC. Cameron, I don't think went to USC. Like th- that's the premier film school and a lot of the best directors never went there. Mm-hmm. Well, even film school has its limits is like, you know, a lot of stuff we learned in film school, it's the basis, like the foundation of our knowledge. But like we still learned a lot from the Internet and a lot from doing because like there's only so much you can learn, especially like an indie level in film school. You learn a lot more like studio kind of level stuff and not how to do stuff run and gun. So that's a good point, I think, because one of the things that I read that we were supposed to do is do a shot list. But it was so labor intensive and it took so long that it really wasn't worth it. What we did instead is an annotated script, which is I take the script, a shooting script, and I just mark on it what shots I want, where. And then I number them. And then we went through the order. And that was just so much easier because instead of three pieces of paper, you have to keep track of things. You have one. Mm -hmm. You just cross it off and people can see it's crossed off and you just work your way through it. And that just made things a lot. That actually made things a lot. Once I did that, everything got a lot easier. Mm -hmm. I would encourage you, like something you said with pre-production is I I was the first AD and producer on Andrew's film. So we made sure, like part of the reason why it was so quick is we made sure to schedule out a lot of things and to do that all like ahead of time so that it was easy for us to get that coverage very quickly um annotated script is good um but just having like a very set mindset of how you know you're going to break down the script and like what days are going to be what and you know it just makes the whole process so much easier yeah Yeah. and um we were also forced in the sense that we kind of designed the film to be easy to shoot and that it was locked camera locked tripod Mm -hmm. uh, medium shot you could do different variations, but you don't really need them unless it's for a very specific purpose. Mm-hmm. Medium shot, reverse shot, Y2 shot, and that we just stuck with those. Because what happened in one case is that we filmed in a bar with myself and Graham. I think it's Graham Moore. Um, and we spent eight hours going doing a five-page scene. We shot nine different angles. So we had full Hollywood coverage. Mm-hmm. It took me a month to edit. And wow, it was amazing. Like by the time I got that thing done, it was singing. It was so mm-hmm. professional. It was right. so sleek. It did everything it wanted to do. And we cut it because it didn't really? need to be there. Right. Yeah. I right. felt so bad because I had to go tell Graham afterwards. Like I cut that scene. I'm so sorry. He's like, no, it's all good, man. It's like, you got to do what you got to do. It happens. Yeah. Five pages in eight hours is good though. Yeah. Like that's quite a bit, you know, for especially for like um a more involved scene with a less controlled set with lighting less controlled lighting that that's quite a bit to get through so yeah and it made me force the focus in on what i wanted where it was great to have all that coverage you had so much control and you do see why they do it but you don't absolutely need it you could do it in a different way i think for the next film would be nice to do is more design shots mm-hmm. like camera that moves and like a, instead of having dialogue okay shot next piece of dialogue reverse shot like back and forth where you could design a shot where it kind of moves through the scene and it seems more elegant like kind of like a spielberg runner like yeah the technology is that's the other thing i have to decide with camera is like with the sony fx3 the autofocus is really good Mm -hmm. so you can do that without having a focus puller Mm -hmm. where that's we just couldn't do that with a canon t3i rebel (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, we all start at that level. We had a Canon T3i level. You had a T3i, okay. I had a T2i. Yeah. Yeah, it's the beginning. We had the T7i, and then we upgraded from there. Like, you got to start somewhere. So Exactly. So speaking of which, I'd love to hear what's next for you on the filmmaking front. What's, you know, what's right in front of you or what's maybe like a year away or maybe even what's in the far future in your mind? Uh, well, we do have a, I do have a script that I've written um, that might be doable. I have to try and figure out called Escrow and it's on Black Horse right now so you can go check it out. And I think the challenge is we wrote it, the idea that it would be me and my wife and in the same house. And so you have control over the house. Right. Uh, and then you have a circumstance where then you kind of have like, um, I guess it's like you go to the afterlife and I made it in outer space. And the nice thing about space is it's, I think it's easier to, to overcome that uncanny valley because we don't see the celestial objects in our day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. So it's easier for us to accept them when we see them that aren't visual. Like even black holes, we've never actually seen a black hole up close. We don't really know what they look mm -hmm. like. We know the math. And so when we see something that's created by that, we're like, oh, that looks pretty good. It's, it's our, our Uncanny Valley is, is a reference point is other films, not reality. Right. So I think that might be easier. And then you can have like a single key light and then lighting challenges become interesting. So it's doable. Mm -hmm. The question is, I want to like, can I think of something that's a little bit like more ambitious, but also less ambitious, more ambitious from a storytelling perspective, but also like something you can actually film. Mm -hmm. But I also want to try and get something that's a big idea and kind of broad strokes to help give people a reason to go see this film. Like, why should I go see this movie? If you're coming of age story when there's 10,000 coming of age stories at a micro budget level, why should you tell your comedy when there's like 10,000 comedies about that? Mm -hmm. Why should I go see this movie? Oh, you're talking about something I've never seen before. Okay. I got to go see that. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, it's great to hear that your first filmmaking experience didn't scare you off yeah. from <laughs> the whole idea in general. I mean, it should be theoretically easier this time because you've learned so much from the first one. Yeah, I, yeah. I think the challenge now is I know what I need to upgrade because it's not like I have gear that I like. Basically, I got to replace all the gear. Cameras got to be replaced, probably new lens. Uh, light will need to be different. I'll probably have to replace the computer. I'll probably have to do, do a new hard drive setup. Like, cause I did it on just four terabyte IDE drives where I think I need to go up to raid, mm. uh, making sure the backup utility and my backup system works. Like, I think there's a lot of detail in the workflow that is like, okay, that's going to cost money. That's going to cost money. Like everything yeah. costs money. <laughs> like I looked at, again, we were talking earlier about, uh, I think the creator in the Sony FX3 and I'm like, wow, that's a $5,000 camera. That's not bad. It's like, yeah, but the rig they use is six grand. So yeah. that's actually a $11,000 camera. Do mm -hmm. you need right. that rig? It's like, uh, I don't know. Depends on what kind of shots you want to get, I guess. I think that's the right answer is I have to think about what's the movie I'm going to make first and what demands, uh, what does what camera does it need? Right. I think you could get away with a smaller camera and just get a small gimbal and get nice shots from that. Or like a tripod and a slider. I always like those nice slow shots, but mm -hmm. that's the one of the things is that you see in films and you don't really notice it because it's so smooth. It's like the pushes in and the pulls out and yeah. how the impact that that has on your experience. I'm like, oh, I want to do that more in the film where you mm -hmm. can add those little details and make, instead of trying to get through everything so quickly, like make it a simpler movie, but then put more into the thought and effort into the craft, I think mm -hmm. would be a lot of fun. It's a good effort. Yeah. Like that's a good idea to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, as we wrap up here, I'd love to open the floor up to you. Is there anything, any story that you feel like 
uh, deserves to be told from your filmmaking journey or just anything left unsaid as we talk about the canvasser and future films? Uh, I don't think so. I think the only thing that has to be unsaid is um, I think it's something that anybody can do. It's not something we always have this like conversation and we always want to treat it like there's these, these super smart, super brilliant people and they're, they're born to do this. And it's like, that's who, and that's who they are. And it's like, that's not true. It's like, everybody can do this and you have your own little stories to tell. And I think with the technology as it is, maybe it's shorts, but it's, I think it's something that anybody should really consider doing. Cause I think we more, it seems to be, there's a paradigm shift happening where I think the diversity of stories that we can get and just the more experimental we can get now as the technology gets more and more affordable, you can take more risks and do something really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the advice or the the thing that I would say. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Appreciate it. Scott, where can people find you? Uh, My website is scottblurton.com, I think. I can't, is it .com or .ca? I think they both forward (laughs) to the same place. So I think it's just uh, dots. I think it's scottblurton.ca. I don't really do much on Twitter anymore. I don't really do much on social media because it's like I've been tired from the movie and yeah, for sure. raising a little kid. Uh, mm-hmm. It takes a lot of effort. So mostly the website is where all the stuff would be. I also have a YouTube channel, I think, which is some of the stuff's on there. I don't really post too much, unfortunately. So I would just suggest the website, scottblurton.ca. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, That's Scott, great. thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I can't wait to see what else is coming from you down the pipeline. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. Thank you very much.